All right. Good morning. It is such a blessing to be uh, with you, and uh, I've enjoyed the conference over in Lawton the last couple of years, but being kind of, uh, often it feels a little distracting around the book table, have to be on alert there, you know, and seeing what people are in need of and spending a lot of time focused on that. So it's awfully good to be able to stay afterwards uh, and come to one of the host churches and to get to know you, get to know Josh and his family, and uh, this has been an extra blessing. If you'll turn to Hosea chapter 6, Hosea chapter 6 is where our message will be from this morning, and I'll just read the first three verses. Come let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. If you're a regular attender of Meridian Church or a member of this church or frankly of any gospel-believing church where people know and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, it can't ever possibly come as a surprise to hear a message that would open with, come let us return to the Lord. Can it? That's so much a daily part of our life. It was Augustine, I think, who said, not as a baby Christian, but after some years of living and being known as a a mature Christian and a well-known writer who said, I sometimes feel like I was just born to keep repenting. Again, not at the start of the Christian life saying this, but as a man in a mature state of the Christian life. Every week we come to return to the Lord. Every morning you probably feel like you return to the Lord. And perhaps every evening you feel like, again, you return to the Lord. In our own devotional time, Every evening as we go to bed, we look back in one fashion or another, our life is a constant return to the Lord. At times, that's a return that strongly implies repentance, that we have strayed, that we're aware of particular acts, deeds that we're dishonoring to God in our life. Uh, There will be other times that we will return to the Lord out of at least that sense of, you know, I, I need you every hour, that there's that as well. That at my best, there is always still this wandering heart that needs to be tugged again, back closer, reeled in again, brought back near the Lord. At other times, the return would be more describable as a return to be fed again. A, A hunger, a sense of being parched, a sense of being needy, realizing I'm one of the sheep of his pasture. I need you to nourish me again to get more supplies of grace. Or putting it more positively, uh, at times a return to bring him more of the worship to which he's due. But again and again, it's our habit, if we are believers, to return to the Lord. Likewise, going a little further down in the passage, it can also be no surprise to any Christian who's a member of a sound church to hear a call in a Sunday message as it's worded in verse 3, to press on to know the Lord. There's another aspiration that's a constant in the Christian life. We want to know Him more. 
We want to know him better. We want to know him more intimately. And as you make progress, you more and more realize that it, it took me such a large portion of my Christian life to get over some of the early influences that I had from, uh, I'd say even in some cases, believers, but believers with unhealthy views of the experience of the Christian life. And I, it took a good bit of time for me to realize that my yearning to know the Lord, to press on to know the Lord, was not necessarily about feeling him in some particular way. Feeling his presence, sensing intimacy or closeness, closeness but rather a, a certainty of faith that when we walk with him, he does walk with us. He's near. And then I'm, that I make myself aware that it's valid and genuine because he has promised it to be so. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you is a promise whether that is a felt reality or not. And all that said, now those two are kind of the highlight statements of the passage. Come, let us return to the Lord. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Those are the two exhortations. There's much promise in between. There's much refreshing material in between. But I wanted to highlight on how, how normal, I suppose you'd say, to the Christian life those two exhortations are. I'm here to urge you to urge one another to be returning regularly to the Lord, and to be pressing on to know the Lord. Now, I suppose that people don't often expect when uh, a guest speaker would come a message out of the minor prophets. But, you know, well, it keeps life interesting. So, here we are. Hosea is in that section of the Old Testament called the minor prophets. And some mistakes have been made about why the minor prophets get called minor. It's not because they're not particularly important. It's not because they're small fry prophets as compared to Isaiah and Jeremiah who are big deal prophets. It's not because they're less useful. It doesn't mean we should read them less often than major prophets, though that's probably what a lot of us do, right? They apparently were dubbed or categorized as minor prophets simply because in your Bible they take up fewer pages. They didn't write as much and they didn't, so they didn't get as much press as Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. And, you know, if, if you've been a careful Bible student, and if you've observed closely, someone might even think, someone skilled at counting, at least, might say, you know, Daniel is called a minor prophet, or, or Daniel is called a major prophet, excuse me. He's categorized with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Daniel is categorized as a major prophet. And Hosea is a minor prophet. And that doesn't seem to make sense, because Hosea has more chapters. Well, biblical books, as originally written, you know, had no chapters. Those weren't there. Those verse numbers were not there. And Daniel is twice as long as Hosea. Daniel is the shortest major prophet. Hosea is the longest minor prophet. And he is still only half the length of Daniel. So anyway, there's way more detail to, about where the term title minor prophets came from than you ever probably wanted but uh, you have it now. Some of these minor prophets might have preached just as much as the major prophets, as those who wrote the longer books, but for reasons only the Spirit of God knows, less of their content was written out for us and kept on record for us. As for Hosea, we won't explore the encyclopedia version of who he was and God's call on his life. I will give you a sketchy edition of it, but Regardless of that, we quickly find in the verses read themes that every believer in Christ should be delighted to hear about. Themes like returning to find refreshment from the Lord again. 
themes like the healing purposes of the trials and wounds that our Lord sends us. Truth about life in the welcoming presence of God. Knowing the Lord better and more closely than we have, and the certainty and reliability of Him drawing near, that we can count on Him being a rewarder of those who seek Him, as Hebrews 11 says. Every phrase in these three verses promises blessing and drips with encouragement and hope. It's loaded. And that's part of why I picked it. I've been meditating on it before coming here for some weeks. Now, one can talk about these verses. You know, you, you, you've got to know these things about them. One can talk about these verses as descriptive of times in our own personal Christian life and our need to be exhorted these ways. One can also talk about these verses as a picture of the need for conversion. One could also talk about these verses as a picture of a need for national revival. Any of those would be appropriate. So long as we at least start, we've got to start honestly with the passage by understanding them in context that to the nation it was the latter of those three. This was a call to repentance for a wayward nation, to national revival, an apostate nation being called back to God. Today, I will apply that, as long as we're aware of that being the case, we'll talk mostly of this as a picture of the needs in our own personal Christian life because being, being drawn away from the Lord by sinful inclinations and returning to the Lord to find grace is obviously an experience common to us all, right? Common to us all. Now, as for Hosea, I said I wouldn't give you an encyclopedia version about Hosea, but you need a little bit of something for, for you to know concerning him. He was a prophet in Israel for a long time, <clears throat> about 40 years. So let's say this, this is a little like talking about the preaching career of uh, R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur and how long they've preached the word, God's word in, in the USA and the changes they've seen. Hosea covered the reign of five kings. So this might be a little like saying that this man preached to the nation, you know, during the days of Reagan and Bush one and Bill Clinton and Bush two and Obama and Trump. <clears throat> How's that to give you a, a, a capsulized picture of how long Hosea was at this? He was preaching to the 10 northern tribes of Israel <clears throat> who had turned from the Lord. The nation was in apostasy. And you know, <clears throat> you know that you're in apostasy when God looks for an illustration to describe you and he picks a prostitute. You know, chances are you're in serious apostasy when that's what God picks to illustrate you. Now, biblical illustrations tell us a lot. They aren't picked at random. When the Apostle Paul describes, when he looks for, how can I describe the damage that a man does to himself when he loses his conscience? And a man that's been through three shipwrecks decides, I'll use a shipwreck. That's my illustration. And when Jesus describes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he picks tombs that are full of dead bones, <clears throat> but that were painted white outside to make them look nice and to hide the fact that there was hideous ugliness within. And when John the Baptist describes preachers who serve themselves and not the people, he talks about a pit of snakes, a brood of vipers. And when God tells Hosea, let's make the people grasp how bad their straying from me is, <clears throat> he says this, if you go back to chapter 1, and verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom <clears throat> and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went into Gomer, the daughter of Deblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. He 
says, marry a prostitute. And when you experience how unfaithful she is to you, and the people of Israel see it too, <clears throat> and they say, man, you have our sympathy, Hosea. You've really got our sympathy here because it's awful the way your wife runs around on you, how unfaithful she's been to you. And God opens that door for you to tell them that's you. She's a picture of the way that you are dealing with the Lord. It's like, you know, it's a Paul Washer moment in that youth retreat where he said, why are you smiling? I'm talking about you. The politics in Hosea's time were filled with conspiracies, violence, people acquiring positions of power by murder. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> and worst of all, apostasy from the Lord and becoming disciples of an entirely different religion, the God of fertility. That had infected not just the rulers, but the people at large in a big way. So Hosea's preaching is loaded with blunt and frank exhortation. <clears throat> and let me encourage you about this. If This is why, when, when I say Hosea's preaching is just loaded with blunt, frank exhortations. If you ever try to do your own Bible study of the book of Hosea, all right, if this message or any other message in the future or some commentary inspires you to try to do a study of Hosea, if you find it difficult to outline, it's not you. Don't sweat it. You should find it difficult to outline because it's a scrambled egg. It's not very structured. From chapter 4 onward, it reads more like the random exhortations of Hosea. Collected sayings rather than full sermons on themes. And to put it as plainly as he does, Hosea was preaching in times of a genuine religious mess. And into that, he was called to live this life which would illustrate his preaching. Marry a harlot. Now that's lifestyle evangelism, if there ever was one. His personal life was turned upside down to be a billboard, hideously exhibiting the people's wickedness, and then the grace of God to them, willing to forgive them and have them back. But if they're going to be forgiven, jump back to the context now before chapter 6, looking at the end of chapter 5, the people have to realize the grave danger and desperate condition they are in. And so the Lord says through Hosea, just prior to our verses, look at chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For I will be like a young lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will re return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly Seek me. Having heard from God that this is what's necessary, Hosea then calls on the people and says, do it. He said that you'll find him when you earnestly seek him. Do it. Earnestly seek him. Come, let us return to the Lord. Now here are the points. First of all, we're going to be talking about verses 1 and 2, urging or exhorting one another to repent. And there are two headings under that. Despite him being the one who struck us down and being certain that he will lift the penitent back up. All right? So we're exhorting one another, the passage says, to, to repent. And then, despite him being the one who struck us down and being certain that he will lift the penitent up. And then we will talk about urging each other to know him as a second part. But first, urging each other 
to repent. What else could he mean by come, let us return to the Lord? Returning to the Lord is in essence the meaning of repentance. Turning from sin to God. Do not be surprised. Certainly never be surprised if the preaching you hear week in and week out regularly calls you to repentance. This is part of the heartbeat of a sound church. Do not consider yourself peculiar or odd if your days are moving from one repentance to another. This is a normal state in the Christian life. We are always returning to the Lord because if you know yourself, you know that you live a lot of life distracted from the Lord, diverted from the Lord. And so you have to be called back. The word repent kind of hurts at times. It, it hits us with a negative connotation. We feel it's, it's barb. But see the positive side of it as well. When Paul talked about the Thessalonians, he rejoiced that they had turned from sin to God. And you are coming from somewhere else, something else to the Lord. You are being drawn to the Lord. And if you want it to keep from, you know, if you, if you want to keep from sounding like a moral beating that you're giving your friend, then when you call on people to return to the Lord, do it as Hosea does. Come, let us return to the Lord. We are regularly returning to the Lord. Keep your speaking in terms of us, as Hosea does. When I say repent to you, it should not be as if it's just what you need to do, but what we need to do corporately. For even if you think, brother or sister, your sins are not as serious as another's, and you may be quite wrong in underestimating the gravity of your own, your calls to repent and turn to the Lord, return to the Lord, will come off as empty and lame if they do not patently include you. And we come back to him, he says, despite him being the one who struck us down. There's that first heading underneath that return to the Lord. Despite him being the one who struck us down. This prophet whose message from God overflows with fierce judgments and heavy rebukes, strong medicine from the Lord, yet the prophet pauses a moment to breathe between these austere revelations that God makes of his character and add this editorial comment of his own and say, folks, when God speaks this sharply to us, don't run away. Come to him. Come to him. Don't flee the God who speaks to you this way. Return to him. Approach what you have been told is a consuming fire, and you know what you will find when you approach in sincere, heartfelt repentance? It doesn't consume. It purifies. It consumes what you want it to consume, the remnants of your sin, but it doesn't devour you. It purifies. You actually have no safe choice to do otherwise but to approach the fire if you are backslidden. Draw near the fire. If you come closer, it won't devour you. It'll purge you with a sanctifying influence, and you will come to realize the, the fire that you're approaching already burned itself out on the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. And he's only showing it to you so you can see afresh what he endured for you. And you know exactly, brother and sister, you know exactly what this is like if you've had one of those Sundays. Everybody's had them. Even pastors have had them in case you didn't know it. One of those Sundays that you really didn't feel like coming to church. You ever have Sundays like that? Even you, right? Anyone. You didn't feel like it. And you were sure that it would make you feel worse and more guilty and you felt dirty enough already from the sins of mind or heart and maybe even more that you would engage that week. But somehow the sway, the tug of the Spirit of God got you here. 
And what was it like? What was it like every time? Did you regret it? Were you sorry you came? Didn't it warm your heart and soul and purify and at least restore your joy a little? And you left glad that you had come and there was a sense of equipping and you were ready to go back out and fight and deal with the world and resist the devil and fight your flesh? That's what it is to, return, to, to approach the fire, which he is, and not turn away. And as I said, you have no safe optional choice because this fire is big enough to be, his fire is just as big enough to, to be capable of reaching out and consuming those who run from it as it can those who draw near. One who has run from it is no safer than one standing next to it. Its flames can reach. The truth be told, the fire of God will only devour those who will not come, but will always purge and cleanse and refresh those who do come near. So back to that comment that he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down and will bind us, bind us up. Perhaps you are someone who's conscious that God has torn you, that he has struck you down. You feel wounded and you know it's by him. And maybe it's due to your sins. Maybe it's due to a particular sin. Maybe you can't even trace a particular sin that it's his discipline for. That's okay too because Hebrews tells us he scourges every son whom he receives. We know that the afflictions he sends are for our good and that we always have further to go and further to grow. So he's always increasing our faith and shaping it. Just know that he never sends these afflictions in hatred or wrath into the lives of those who are his. He does it so that you will seek the healing that only he can give. Only he knows how to heal what he has torn. He will bandage what his spirit has wounded. And that's why the promise follows. When it says in verse 2, after two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up that we, will, that we may live before him. Now that verse, verse 2 has an element of fascination for any, any Bible reader who knows the basics of the gospel as revealed in the New Testament. Because it's got that little phrase about on the third day he will raise us up. And he's, ah, I recognize that. I've heard that before. That's got a familiar sound. Is this some sort of prophecy of Christ's resurrection life and that being the source of our, our new life? I suppose it, it could be. It does, though, to, to interpret it that way, does leave one wondering what then does after two days he will revive us mean? And I have a lot of commentaries um, you can, you're, not, you're not too surprised to hear a book guy say he's got a lot of commentaries, you know. I've got quite a few. I remember, remember reading something about, I saw a little poster one time about that, or a meme about that Japanese lady that's into cleaning, Kondo, Marie Kondo or something, you know, and she said, you shouldn't have more than about 20 books. And I thought, what, do you mean like 20 commentaries on Romans? You know, because that's, that's, what, that's what I've got. I've got about 25 commentaries just on Romans. So she and I would not get along in the library very well. I don't have that many on Hosea. But I can tell you this, that every commentary I've got on Hosea that tries to explain, you know, if there's some sort of specific meaning related to the gospel in every, after two days he will rise, revive us, I haven't found anybody else who understands it either. Some will say, well, yes, of course this is a reference to Jesus. The third day there and all of that and how our new life is in him. Well, the idea is appealing, it's just not provable. And, you know, and he, he didn't revive after two days and just hang around in the tomb for another night to, for the fun of it before coming out. So it's not a clear prophecy of that in this case. All we can say for sure here is, is that the remark certainly seems to be a signal from the Lord that when I afflict you and then revive you, you know what? It won't stay that way. 
it won't be terribly long. I will quickly restore those who come to me. He never wounds with hostility. He raises up. He does this so that we will live before him, it says. That's his purpose, that we would walk with him, that we would live in his fellowship. He's like a doctor who only gives a shot because it will heal. I remember when I was 10 years old, I broke my wrist falling out of an apple tree in my backyard. It hurt. It was one of the worst pains I'd ever felt at the time in my life. And I, I landed on my hand and it resulted in my wrist breaking in such a way that there was a large protrusion of an angular shape here. My mother took me directly to the doctor. You know what hurt worse than that break? Much, much worse? When the doctor put his hands on me and he said, I am now going to reset that bone. And he said, and you are going to feel something that you've never felt before. <laughs> and he wasn't lying. Because when he reset that wrist and it clicked, it snapped back into place, that hurt way more than the original break. Now maybe it's because I expected it coming, I'm not sure. Maybe the fall out of the tree was a shock and so that you know, had its own elements. Perhaps the surprise took away some of the pain at the moment as I was focusing on falling. But that, that is the most painful physical memory that I've ever recalled. A doctor resetting it to do good. That's the point here. When he hurts, he will heal. It's for our good. But on to the next point. We've been talking about how there's this urging here to return to the Lord, to repent and return to the Lord. But secondly, hand in hand with that, there is the exhortation to press on to know the Lord. You see that in verse 3. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Surely you're aware. Press on to know the Lord does not just fit backslidden Old Testament Israelites. It's to be our constant pursuit. Because surely you know no matter how far we have come in the knowledge of God, we are still far from knowing Him as He could be known. As fully as He could be known. We've only touched the hem of the garment, if you will. And there are more riches in Him to be discovered. Even as the Apostle Paul prayed, and many, many of the Apostles' prayers are reminiscent of this kind of thinking when he said in Colossians 1 and verse 10, that I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience and with joy. He goes on. These are, that's a form of New Testament exhortation to press on and know the Lord. What does press on mean? It's easy to call on the Lord's people, you know, to, to press on, to make more progress, to strive further. Sometimes it, it kind of sounds hollow to us because we don't know exactly what to do with it. You say to yourself, I am trying. How do I try harder? It certainly, press on doesn't sound like an assignment for the lazy. It's not an assignment for those that must have instant gratification. It means there are obstacles. It means there's pushback. Pressing on is not a thing done once and completed. It's a lifelong pursuit, but it's still a rewarding pursuit to press on and know the Lord. Much of life, I'm convinced, this is a little bit of a tangential thought, but I, I was talking with one of my sons about this not long ago. Much of life, I'm convinced, is 
a sort of pursuit of glory, a pursuit of something that is greater than ourselves. It's why no matter what men make their pursuit, what they decide they love the most and that they chase after, they can't ever have enough of it. A lot of my friends know that I'm a hiker. I like to find what one might call destinations of glory, places of beauty, spectacular hidden waterfalls that have not been seen by many way back in the woods of the Ozarks, or high points, mountains in Colorado. Others seek different types of satisfaction. Even the quest for sinful pleasures that men seek, you know this, they keep craving even after they have been satiated because they want more of it. We were made, of course, to find this in God. Our hobbies, our interests, our pursuits, these lesser things that we do not need encouragement to press on in seeking those things. We do it. They appeal to us. The sinful pleasures that men want, the pursuit of them doesn't feel like, doesn't even feel like pressing on. They're drawn magnetically to them. But we often must be urged to press on to know the Lord because despite however much he appeals to us, the world appeals too, doesn't it? And it keeps appealing. And the flesh appeals too. The flesh wars with the spirit. The spirit wars with the flesh. You can tell by the earnest tone of the wording in Hosea. This is an exhortation to more than learning just a few more truths about God. It's an exhortation to eagerly pursue a, a richer and closer and deeper knowledge of him. Remember that our Lord Jesus said that this is eternal life to know you and Jesus Christ. You know, to know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is that really saying but that we miss the point of eternal life? We miss the point for which we've been saved if we regard it merely as a gift given to forgive us our sins and to move us out of a state of wrath. The aim of salvation is more than just to undo all the negative consequences, but to bring us into a, having reconciled us to God, to bring us into a fresh and joyful relationship with God. But God is not known by the sluggish, Hosea's words would seem to imply. He will not be known by all those only mildly interested in actually knowing Him. There has to be a pressing on. This word pressing, it's actually a word that was used for hunting or chasing. There's no knowing the Lord without chasing him, hunting after him, pressing into it. Even the mature have to continue to do this. Would we call the Apostle Paul mature? Of course we would. And he, he says this in Philippians 3. He says that I press on, not that I've already obtained it, I haven't already obtained it. What did he mean? He meant I haven't obtained fully to become like him and knowing him as I should. And so I press on to make that more my own. So here we are Sunday by Sunday and week by week and morning by morning when you open the Word of God to yourself. Things that are already ours, things that we already possess, we press on to know them more. To have more of them. Christ is already your own. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. But you press on to cherish Him as a closer personal possession. It's not that God is an evasive treasure. It's not that God is hard to find so that we have to keep pressing on to find and know him because he makes himself difficult to reach. No, but more, more than any of us estimate, we are evasive hearts. We are wandering hearts. We are often seeking a variety, a bevy of other things, and we need to press ourselves back to seeking him. But I raised the question a few minutes ago, and I, I do not feel expert on the point that I'm about to share with you, I can only share what 
what little I have. I said a while ago that I was going to comment on, well, how do you do that? How do people who feel like I, I am laboring in sanctification, I am seeking to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, how do I, how do, I do that? I knew, I knew someone was going to ask in their heart. And much of why we have to ask that is because uh, even our, our spiritual growth often comes by such small and imperceptible degrees in life that we, we may not at times even know that it's happening. But if we take time as a daily habit to seek his face and to seek him in his word, you know, we'll be like, we'll be like the child who doesn't necessarily have to measure himself at the, at the ruler by the washroom door every day. But if he goes back once every year or two, he'll find he's grown. He's taller. People ask me, you know, there are are always the moors. There's the moors. Almost every preacher at some time or other will allude to the moors and say, you know what, when you are trying to grow in grace, you need to get to know that family called the moors better. Who do I mean? More Bible reading, more prayer, more fellowship. Someone will tell you that you need to get to know the Moors. And you think, well, but I've tried that sometimes. I've read more, and I've prayed more, and I've come to church more, you know, and I still, I've got a lot of sin in my life. Getting to know the Moors didn't do it for me. And so people ask me, how do you read the word with profit? They bemoan, I read a, I read a little, and I think about it, but it bothers me that I, I'm unacquainted with so much of the word of God, and, uh, and you know, I, I try to read short portions and meditate them and, on them, and the other portions remain unread. And then by contrast, when I read longer portions, then I don't get any depth and I don't even remember what I've read. And all I can tell people at times is, you know, do some of each. Just be thankful you have the Word of God. Read in great volume at times. You feed on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, so you should try to read all of it. And you need to meditate on His words, not just run them by your eyes. So on other occasions, slow down to closely examine a little portion. In other words, don't feel guilty when you're doing one or when you're doing the other. It's not either or, it's both. Handle the word in this way. And our prayer habits. Name me one Christian who's ready to raise his hand and say, I'm really mature in prayer. (laughs) Or that I couldn't learn something more about prayer. And I, I genuinely believe, you know, that so much of Faithfulness in prayer just has to do with what Jesus said in Luke 18. Just let men always persist in prayer and not faint. If, you're, if you were praying when you first came to Christ in the Christian life, and you're still praying even though you feel like you're doing it poorly, and you still keep praying and you find yourself disappointed with your prayers, but you still pray, and I hope you've read Romans 8 at times and realized that at times when you don't even know what words to pray in and you just moan and groan in the presence of God, groanings that can't be uttered in particular words, and it sounds very much like from what he says in Romans 8, that's, that's prayer that the Holy Spirit has put in your heart when you pray that way. Keep that up. And be an observer of providence. What, what is God doing in your life? Don't let details and events just happen. Watch them and you'll see the hand of God, interpret them, you'll see the hand of God. And as regards church and fellowship, yes, we all have times that that we've got to miss, but don't let yourself make excuses. Don't let yourself be one who intentionally neglects the assembly. These are some of those means of grace without trying to crush you with the mores, if you will.
but nonetheless bringing us back to those things and saying, however well or however poorly you do them, however frequently or however infrequently you do them, keep coming back. Keep coming back to these fountains of grace. And we're drawing near the end. As you do, you'll find, when after he says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, he assures us that God waits to meet those seekers. He says his going out is as sure as the dawn. That is his going out to those who press on to meet him. How sure is the dawn? As far as I can tell, for quite a, while, quite a while now, that's been pretty reliable. I think we've had dawn every day for a really long time. And he promised that. He promised that in Genesis 8. He said, this is, you know, day and night are not going to cease. They're going to keep coming. Sun's going to rise, sun's going to go down. Hosea is saying that God doesn't call men to seek him and then not show up. That's what he's saying. He doesn't say... I'll make an appointment with you and then casually break it off like you've had some people do. Rather amazingly, so amazingly, the God who himself declares that I am too holy to look on iniquity, too holy for fellowship with sinners, fellowships with sinners by the grace of God. It's the same, it's the same reality that the Apostle Paul purposely, I, I've always been convinced, having studied the two passages side by side, I think that very purposely, very aware that Proverbs 17 says that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination before the Lord. I'm entirely convinced that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote, God justifies the wicked, that he knew he would sound like he was contradicting that. Because he wanted to make the point that, yes, the God who is too holy, who has declared himself too holy to fellowship with sinners, does fellowship with sinners who know what they are, who know who they are. He'll be there. And coming back again to that point I made at the start, he'll be there whether you felt him or not. Trust by faith that he came to you and supplied what you need because he said he would. But it gets better. Not only does it say that he's sure to meet the seekers, that he's reliable, but the latter phrase of verse, verse 3, he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rain that water the earth. This is an assurance that he refreshes the dry heart. This is not so much another promise, a second one, as it's an, an attraction added to the promise, an incentive added to the promise, a beautiful fruit added to the promise. Just as the previous phrase, his going out is assures the dawn, emphasizes that he is sure to come when we seek him, this phrase about the showers and the spring rains emphasize how refreshing his coming will be. It'll be like a spring rain when I irrigate your soul. The desolation will be gone. But once again, I've got, I've, got to, I've got to make sure you're thinking about that in a Hebrew way. All right? We read something like that. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. I find innately myself when I read that I have an emotional response to something that I'm supposed to feel. Does it strike you that way? Oh, that just sounds so refreshing. You know? And you picture like a girl running through a field of daisies and it's sprinkling on her and it's just very lovely and this refreshing feeling. Well, this is an agricultural, agricultural culture, people. 
and to talk about how well he comes to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth, that means stuff, stuff is going to grow again. They wouldn't have had so much a, a, an emotional response to that, that, oh, that just sounds like it feels good. No, what it means is that food is going to grow. We're going to have what we need. Because most of us know better than to think or believe that every time we pray, it's going to be like, oh, it's going to be the windows of heaven opening and pour out all kinds of great and wonderful feelings again. Well, I'm sorry, but I've prayed a lot of times that nothing like that happened. And I bet you have too, and so I'm not going to stand up here and act like it's different. And I'm not going to tell you that every time I seek the Lord earnestly that all the dryness goes away. I've had times of prayer that started dry, stayed dry, and ended dry. But that was just how I felt. Was I really dry? Probably not as much as I felt. I've had times of Bible reading that started off feeling like I was an empty cup, and afterwards, I didn't feel like I'd learned much of anything. So what is God promising here? The purpose of such rains, of such showers from the Lord is to bring forth fruit. What's going to happen is your abiding in the vine will result in fruitful living, will result in changes in you, however indiscernible they are at times. This body-soul mixture thing that we are, this body-soul blend we are, it, it prevents us from feeling and seeing a lot of things as they actually are. No. That he comes to you as the showers, as spring rains that water the earth. Believe it, that when you've sought his face, this takes place. He has showered upon you. He has soaked your parched soul. Count on him to bring forth fruit from it, however it feels. And if an apostate nation of people who have thoroughly turned away from God could be exhorted this way, people who have been so threatened with thundering judgments for their sins, how sure we can be then that the God who has already begun a good work in us, of saving us, that he will complete it, that he is ready to further our sanctification by grace. So brother and sister, will you, will you return again to the Lord? Unashamed that you have to, only feeling that appropriate shame that I, I am continuing to reveal, to demonstrate that I'm a sinner in need of his grace, but identified with the people of God, that yes, we return to the Lord. Will you continue to press on to know the Lord? So much of whether we will do that, whether we'll return to the Lord again, however it felt last time we did, will we press on to know the Lord again, whether we felt the refreshment or not? Whether we'll do that depends so much on, on do we believe He's a rewarder of those who seek Him? He is. He is. Read these promises. Don't just, don't get lost only in the exhortations of this passage. Read the promises that are built within it. And know but yes, he, will, he is torn, but he will heal. In your trials, he is struck down, but he will raise you up. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for these fresh words from Hosea. Thank you for this prophet, for speaking through him. I pray that you'll have used his words this morning for this flock to build them up in the faith and even perhaps to call some to press on to know the Lord and to 
return to the Lord even for the first time. Perhaps there's some here that do not know you and who need to be drawn into the presence of God by the blood of Christ for the first time. May they hear the voice of the Son of God and live and bow the knee to Christ. Thank you for gathering us today. In Christ's name, amen.